What an encouraging thing that we know we can trust Jesus. You have to come to that place where you can sing that song and mean it with every fiber of your being if you're going to go on in your relationship with the Lord because everything in regard to your relationship with the Lord is based on trust. You have to trust. That's really at the very heart of what saving faith is about. You've got to trust Him. You've got to trust that the Lord knows best, as Sister Hunt's song said. You've got to trust that He has your best interest at heart. You've got to trust that He loves you. We just came back from an absolutely beautiful, I was trying to think of words as well, Brother Jim. We use some words so often that if we're not careful, I don't mean using them, but listening to them. If we're not careful, they'll become so common that they don't have their punch, their potency anymore. Saying it's wonderful, beautiful, excellent, you know. Those are big words. We can use them about things and not realize just how high of a word they are in terms of what they're expressing. We have had some meetings among the ministers here in the last few months, and I feel like there was a direct link between the meeting we had here in our session during the youth meeting and the same exact spirit we felt in this minister's meeting. That sweetness, that love, that's really what it comes down to is love. Everything in God's economy is love-driven. You have to have conviction and be driven by your convictions. You've got to have faith, but most of your convictions, your faith, your beliefs, your teaching, anything you might have is sterile and cold without love. And it'll never be organic enough to grow anything. We said this here the other week. You might have all knowledge, all faith. Those things don't have any value whatsoever without love. Love is the, should be the driver behind them, but love is also the fuel. It's what will keep you going. If you realize that I love God and God loves me. Now, you know God's love for you is something you experience before you ever loved Him. Sometimes people get caught up in the, and I usually word it like that, when they get captivated by some theological idea and they miss a very simple point because they overcomplicate it. How faith is produced, you know, and God causes you to have faith. Yes and no. God causes you to repent. Yes and no. By yes and no, I mean it's something God's doing, but you have to do it. God isn't doing it for you. You know some people that think God gives you saving faith. You didn't have any faith, and suddenly God just drops it in your brain, and you've all of a sudden got faith like that. No, God gives you the evidence you need to reach out in faith. Faith is in its infancy. Faith is an exercise that requires a little bit of blindness in its infancy. I mean, when faith is in its early stages, sometimes you don't know enough. But God says, will you still do it? Abraham left his whole entire culture. He left his whole culture behind. Read the 12th chapter of Genesis. Abraham was asked by God to leave the earth of the Chaldees. He was asked by God to leave that nation, to leave his kindred, which is his larger family, to leave his father's house, which was, other than his wife, his immediate family. He had to leave everything behind to go on with God. And God asked him to go, as you see in Hebrews 11, to a country that he had never known anything about. He had to blindly step out, having confidence in the God that he trusted in. And he grew in that confidence, as you know, knowing the story of Abraham. He grew in that confidence as he went on until he finally came to the place where it reached a great peak and God's request of him to offer up his son on Mount Moriah. That was the peak of the testing of Abraham's faith. He didn't always succeed. He had times his faith wavered. 
Times he went into Egypt, as you know. Times he was in the area, the territory of Abimelech. And both cases, his faith in God had to have wavered a little bit because he was nervous about telling the people of that land that Sarah was his wife. Sarah was so beautiful that he was afraid somebody would try to kill him for his wife. There is no such thing, by the way, but I'm going to word it this way. He told a half lie, half truth. There's no such thing. Truth is truth. There's no half to it. You might have told some truth along with the lie, but there's no half truth or half lie. It's either a lie or it's the truth. He told what you might call a half truth, though. Some of it was true. She was his sister, if you look back far enough, half sister. So maybe you'd say it's a half sister and a half truth. She was his sister, but not the way he was trying to present her. He wanted them to think she was marriageable, so don't kill me. In that part of the ancient world, in order for somebody to marry her, they would have to come to the next kinsman. So when he told them he was her brother, he was setting it up so they wouldn't want to kill him because it's not my wife, don't kill me. But they'd also come to him first because they got to make a deal with him to marry his sister. What a horrible thing to put your wife through, pretend to be her brother so that you wouldn't be in danger. His faith did waver at times, but his faith reached a great pinnacle. And then offering up, he never did the offering up, but offering up in terms of being willing to offer up his son Isaac. And the fact that God said after that, whether God himself, this is a mystery because of the way the language is in the scripture. It's not 100% clear if it was God speaking or if it was God speaking through an angel or if it was an angel speaking. But the angel of the Lord said, now I know. Now, we touched on this. I'm going to talk a little bit about the ministry. I'm going to try to keep myself fairly short in case anyone else wants to say anything. But I'm not good at that when I've got this much on my heart. It's hard when you come out of a meeting like this to say a few words and get out of the way. It's really hard. I was reining myself in even in the meeting. There's, it was such a beautiful meeting that we had so much interaction. I think Brother Hurst counted at one time on the first day, we'd already had 15 ministers that had really got into the discussion. That doesn't always happen. A lot of times it can just be a few people talking and everyone's kind of listening. But there were quite a few, I don't know how many, it might have been several dozen by the time we got done that were really engaged, not just asking a question or bringing something up, but doing a little bit of talking. I did a little more talking than I was wanting to, so I was trying to rein myself in. But I can't always do that. Sometimes your heart is so full. When I was singing this song about how I can trust Jesus, I trust Him not just because He's done things for me in the past. That's a good reason to trust Him. You trust Him based on your experience. But I trust Him because I know He loves me. Jesus loves you. That's a simple message, but it is absolutely revelatory. If you realize how much it can change your life, if you're sure of it, I know Jesus loves me, so I can trust Him. When you really know someone loves you, you can trust them. If you know that they know all the things they need to know to help you, you could even trust them more, couldn't you? I've loved some people that I didn't think had the right answers to things. I loved them and I trusted them, but I couldn't trust them with every decision because I wasn't sure they knew the right answer to some of the decisions. If I was faced with something, they may not know what I should do. I trusted that if they did know, I could trust their advice. I trusted them personally, but they may not know any more than I do about something. But you know, he knows everything that you need. You can trust him with any situation. One of the things we talked about in this minister's meeting we had throughout this week in Louisville was the foreknowledge of God, how God knows things ahead of time, to what degree he knows things ahead of time. I'm not going to get into that in detail right here yet, but maybe another service. But God knows every possible thing that could ever happen. There's a difference between that and the type of foreknowledge that often comes along with certain views in Christianity. God knows everything that's going to happen. 
as if no matter what you do, God already had it set in place. So there really is no choice. It's just going to happen. I believe God knows everything that can happen. And God's so big that no matter what may happen, God's ready to deal with it. He's got an answer. He can account for anything that might happen. God's never taken by surprise. When I got a diagnosis of stage four cancer a couple of years ago, didn't surprise God at all. I'm not blaming him for it. I'm not claiming that he made it happen. Some views in Christendom would say anything that happens, God made happen. Here is the problem with that. If God truly is love, there are some things that if he designed it, it's so horrifying. You would have to make him horrifying to be the designer of something that horrific. It's very different to think that we have a God who allowed evil to occur than to think we have a God who intended evil to occur. Those are not the same thing. There is a dire difference between those two things. One of them is a God who loves, and he wants to be loved in return. And in order to love and to be loved, you have to be able to freely choose that relationship. So if somebody were to say to you, I love you, that isn't automatically going to make you love them. You have to choose to love them in return. They can make it easy for you. I've known people that told folks they loved them that didn't act like they loved them at all. Even in the courtship period, they didn't act like they loved them. They treated them terrible and had strange ways of expressing their affections. But I love you. You better stay away from a relationship like that. If you've got somebody whose love in their word does not equal their love in their deeds, stay as far away from them as you can. I mean, in terms of having a relationship with them. One of the things that causes us to love somebody in return is that we not only are told they love us, but we experience their love. We see their love in action. Love in the Bible most of the time is an active thing. It's not just an intellectual idea like someone philosophizes, what is love? And they want to sit and pick it apart philosophically. What does it mean? Let me make it really simple for you. 99.9% of the time, love is an action. It's not just some kind of description of some feeling you've got. It's an action. If the feeling is right, the actions will be right. That's why if you're thinking you love something but you're not acting right toward it, you don't love it. You need to make some changes. If we want to claim that we love God, we have to act right towards God. You've got to have a right relationship with God. So one of the things, I'm just going to try to touch on some of these issues. Hard for me not to get on a subject and take off some of them, but I have been under the judgment of God at times in my life. When I was outside of His will, I was outside of His relationship with Him. I don't know if I'll be able to have time today to get into this in depth, but I'll explain how I might later. His love for me did not change when my relationship with him changed. In some sense, his love was unconditional. You have to qualify that because people use that type of phrase today to mean something very different than what I'm saying. Sometimes someone will say, my love is unconditional. What they mean is, no matter what you do, you'll still have all the benefits of being in a relationship with me. If you said to somebody, God never forbid, I love you, we're married, but if you have an affair, my love's unconditional, I'll still stay with you. Nothing will change about our relationship if you're not faithful to it. You better be faithful to your relationships, whether to God or to your spouse. We want to keep this church clean, don't we? Amen. Make sure everybody's living in the right way. Now, your relationship with God is the one that will impact all your other relationships. Because if you're determined to stay in a right relationship with God, it'll affect every other relationship. Because you'll be in a wrong relationship with God if you're in a wrong relationship with your spouse. It'll hinder your prayers. I think it might have been James. I can't think of exactly where that's at right now. Mine's on something else. It's talked about if you don't get it right with your spouse, if you've got issues with your spouse, it can hinder your prayers. 
You think, well, I'm trying to get through to God, but you're not going to get through to God until you get it right with somebody else that you've caused a problem with. By the way, that's also something we talked about in this meeting. Almost the first full day and evening, we talked about repentance and reconciliation and restitution, what forgiveness is and mercy and grace that's associated with it. So much so that if I started talking on that, I'd spend the rest of the day talking on it. But it was such a powerful feeling. Such a wonderful covering that came over that place. And there's so many things we're bringing back from that that I know all of us that were there will share with you at every opportunity we get in the weeks to come because there were some beautiful things that God put in our hearts, both in the work of that minister's meeting, but also in the things that we discussed and the points that were brought out and the spirit in which they were brought out. It was a peaceable spirit, as Brother Jim talked about in the Sunday school class this morning. But there it is. It's not James. Forgive me. I don't know why I always think that's James. That's Peter. He said, you've got to... Be careful that your prayers aren't hindered because you're not treating your spouse right. We want to make sure our relationships are right. This is what makes God so much bigger than us. God still loves those who are not loving Him. That doesn't mean they get the benefits, though. That's one of the things we touched on that we could have gone deeper with. If we'd had a two-week-long minister's meeting, maybe we would have got into it, but... One of the important things about what I mean by unconditional love, it's not that God is still going to save you no matter what you do. It's that God hasn't stopped loving you. You just are choosing to reject His love. God loves you. I believe John 3.16 means exactly what it says. We don't have to change the meaning of words. We don't have to insert words because our doctrine doesn't match it well. Where somebody will say what it really means is God so loved the elect in the world or His particular people. It doesn't say that. God so loved the world, the world, that's all of us. That means that everybody under the sound of my voice has hope. Nobody in here is destined for destruction. You don't have to be. You've got the ability to choose to love God in return. He's reaching out in love to you. All you have to do is say, I want your love, Lord. To want it, you can't just receive it and walk away. That's not wanting someone's love. If I told my wife I loved her, but I said, bless the Lord, honey, I love you. Let's get married. We got married. And I said, now let's live in separate houses and never talk anymore. What kind of relationship would that be? If you love God, you'll not only keep his commandments, you'll want to be as close to him as you can. You'll want to spend as much time with him as you can. You'll want to make him happy. Don't we want to make people happy when we love them? If you go into some of these passages, Romans 8.28 is one that I think is very significant that often gets missed. I hear this quoted very often without getting one of the underlying points that's in Romans 8.28. But if you go back just a little bit before Romans 8.28, it's interesting because it talks about something that's related to these songs we sang in where we don't always know everything. God knows, but we don't know, as Sister Hunt's song said. Or we can trust Jesus even when we don't understand. Even when we don't have all the information that the Lord has. I said the Lord knows everything that can happen. And He has the ability to respond to anything that can happen. Nothing surprises God. Not because He's already made it happen in the future, but because He knows any possible futures, plural. The future is not set individually. The future is set corporately. Now that might sound like it contradicts itself, but it doesn't. That means there are some things God's already determined it is going to happen. That cannot be changed because there's no power big enough to change it. There are other things God has not set as going to happen. They are out there as elective choice, which means it'll happen for you if you make the right choices. It'll happen for you if you respond in the right way. God is going to have a church. 
And when you study the term elect in the Bible, you'll find out most, if not all, of the times that word's used, it's talking about a corporate group. The church is an elect thing. Israel is an elect thing. You know, some of the very verses they use are in Romans 9, for example, talking about Jacob and Esau, how one was essentially elect and the other was not elect. Well, that means individuals who have been elected to salvation or destruction. You do realize that Esau got everything Esau wanted in his day. God didn't destroy Esau. And by the way, Jacob didn't even get to be the big shot. You know, when he came back after his exile, he came back in a low state, asking Esau to forgive him, asking Esau to be merciful to him. The difference was not in the individual that God just destroyed Esau and delivered Jacob. God had a purpose behind Esau and Jacob. Let me get you started on something I'm not going to develop here today for the sake of time. But study it. Think about it. You realize in Galatians 4, Paul uses Sarah and Hagar, two individual ladies, to be a picture of the Jews under the law and those that were under the new covenant, under grace. When he's talking about them in that passage, and Sarah being the mother of the freeborn, and Hagar being the mother of the slave, his point isn't to talk about them individually. It's to talk about them as corporate pictures of something. That's the same thing that's going on with Jacob and Esau in Romans 9. He had not elected yet the Gentiles that anybody knew about. They could have seen it in the scripture if they were careful, but they didn't see it. That's why Paul later said that this mystery has been revealed that was hid from ages past. You know what part of the mystery was that was revealed? That the Gentiles would be fellow heirs with the Jews. If you're a Gentile, you had to shout glory because the Jews had hope, but the Gentiles did not have hope. But there was a hidden promise in there. God didn't just love Israel. You go to Deuteronomy 7. This is a perfect example why I won't be able to cover this in one day. That all by itself is so powerful. You can spend a lot of time there. When God made that statement that he made about how I did not set my love on you because of some pre-qualification you had, you were just bigger, better, that I chose some quality you had, and that's why I loved you. God chose them out of his love, but it wasn't because they pre-qualified for that. None of us pre-qualify for receiving the love of God. But even though he chose Israel particularly, the predestination associated with Israel's choosing was not every single individual. It was the nation that was predestinated. That was what God elected. He elected to use a nation. He's elected to use a church. You technically could possibly say when you're seeing here today, and you could say it whether you're elect or not. I'm sitting among the elect because the elect are God's people. Whether or not you end up being one of them is another story because you have to make your calling an election sure. Why would you need to do that if God's already made it sure? If God already made your calling election sure, you can't make your calling election sure. But if what God made sure is I will have a church and I'm going to give you an opportunity to be part of it. And now you come in, you're qualifying to be among the elect. But if you'll be faithful, if you'll respond to my offers of love and grace and mercy, you'll be among the elect. And one day when it's all done, you will be elect. We're not there yet. We're still going through that process right now. There, take me off down some side trails, but Deuteronomy 7, maybe we'll do it on a Wednesday night. Deuteronomy 7 is powerful on this point. It's one of the first times in the entire Bible God ever talks about loving anybody. How strange is that? That word ahav or ahav that is used for love in Hebrew is usually just used for the love of men, human love. One of the first times you'll see it in the entire Bible ever used for God is when he says it about Israel. 
The little later in that chapter, he uses a different Hebrew word when he talks about his love for them. Then he talks about them having that love for him. And if we did go through those verses at some point, it's so valuable to see all the structure that's in there. The things they were going to be protected from. I had that passage on my mind this morning right before I walked over to church. And my wife and I were getting ready to go out the door, sitting in the office, which is the last thing I see before I go out the door. But I was sitting there and I said to her that I was going through this passage in Deuteronomy. I mean, I wouldn't read it all to her, but I was telling her this is on my mind. And I said, look at some of these statements. We can't apply all these naturally to ourselves. That God will protect us from all the diseases of Egypt. We've had all kinds of things come through, haven't we? And you know, I've seen people that are some of the godliest and most precious people that have gotten sick. Some have died with COVID and other things. Precious people. God did not protect them from the natural diseases of Egypt. And if I go through that passage at some point, I'll go through it more piece by piece. He can protect us. He's protected me from the disease of cancer. He's protected Brother Moore from the disease of cancer, Brother Tom. Others that God has moved in our behalf. He doesn't have to, though. That's a very unique choice. And him protecting me does not make me holier than you. Doesn't mean he did it because I'm just better in quality than you. I'm being more faithful than you. I hope I'm being an example of faith and faithfulness, especially as a pastor over an assembly. But there have been many people that have been healed. That doesn't qualify them as being better than people that didn't get healed. I've seen great people that did not get healed. That suffered with terrible things. We're not under that promise in a literal, natural way that we're going to be protected from all the diseases of Egypt as long as we keep all God's commands. I'll give you a proof of that. You know Paul said in that third chapter of the Philippians that regarding the law as touching the law, he was blameless. That means Paul, before he became a Christian, before he entered into the New Covenant, was keeping all the law. He was obedient to it. But Paul suffered all kinds of problems. He suffered what looks like illnesses and beatings and everything else. He was not protected from those things because he was obedient to God's law. Not in the natural, in the temporal. Things have changed. The reason God did that for Israel back in Deuteronomy 7 is because he was building a nation. And if he had not put a boundary around that nation to make sure they would be protected from all those natural things, diseases and pestilences and things, they could have wiped them out. Something like COVID could have hit Israel and they could have been wiped out. They could have interacted too closely with the nations around them, picked up diseases and been wiped out. He wanted to make sure those that were obedient to him or something he could base his nation on. So he protected them as long as they're being obedient. He protected them from some of those things so that eventually that nation could grow big enough. We're not in that exact same situation yet. One of these days, there'll be no disease that can touch us. One of these days, we'll be in a body that is so disease resistant, not even the disease of death will be able to affect it. But where we are right now is in a place, if you have a deep understanding of the truth, is even better. If you keep covenant with God, like he told Israel to keep covenant with him, and he went through that list, you can read it in Deuteronomy 7. One of the things was none of the diseases of Egypt will touch you. If you keep covenant with God, none of the spiritual diseases of this world will touch you. If you'll be obedient to God, no power outside of yourself will be able to affect you in a negative way that could take away your relationship from the Lord. That's later in Romans 8, when he talks about who shall separate us. I've mentioned that, I think, several times lately. From the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. He's not asking there who in terms of would God do it or would Jesus do it? Because, of course, they're not going to try to separate you from their love. And the things in that list are not things that would affect God at all. You starving, famine is one of them, is not going to stop God loving you. Why would you even think that's what it's talking about? That's very simple. Those are things that could affect your love for God. I'm just trying to touch some high points here, so I'm a little scattered. I don't want to focus in too tight or I'll be here for a long time. 
But I said there are elements of God's love that are unconditional, but not in the way the world thinks about it. Eventually, if you don't accept God's offer of love and you don't enter into relationship with him, you will face destruction. That is what is going to happen, no matter if he loves you or not. God's love does not override his justice. We think it does. We think mercy overrides justice. That's not exactly right. The justice is still there. God's still being just because he has the right to forgive. God's love does not override his character. If God hates sin, he still hates it, whether he loves you or not. What's so incredible about God is he loves sinners. I said to one of the brethren in this meeting, God loved me when I was meeting no conditions of that love. That's where his love is unconditional. The condition, though, is that if you want to receive his love, you want to get the benefits of his love, you have to respond to it. You have to reciprocate it. But when I was out in the world as a teenager, I did not love God, at least not in a conscious way. I certainly wasn't acting like I loved God. I was acting like somebody that hated God, the spirit I was in, things I was doing. But God's love for me that existed when I was saved as a young person and filled with the Holy Ghost at 12 years of age and grew up in the church, when I left the church and broke the conditions on my part of my covenant relationship with Him, God didn't stop loving me. He didn't condition His love on whether or not I was obeying Him. He still loved me. And because he loved me, when the time was right, and I came to myself like the prodigal, God's love was still there reaching out. Finally, I reached back. When I reached back, then God could pull me back. But his love never stopped reaching. His love was unconditional in terms of the fact that I wasn't worthy of it. I wasn't even meeting the conditions of the relationship. I wasn't getting the benefits of his love, though. Here's where people get confused. Eternal life is a benefit of God's love. You don't get it just because God loves you. God so loved the world, but the world is not all going to receive eternal life. All men he desires saved. All men. It's not some men that he's wanting to have saved. 1 Timothy 2, maybe 4 through 6. God said that he would have all men to be saved and all men to come into the knowledge of the truth. For there's one God, there's one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. The fifth verse is the center point. There's one God. This is a very important statement, but so are the statements that bookend it. There's one God, and that conjunction means you've got two different things. If I said I want peanut butter and jelly, and someone shows up with a peanut butter sandwich, I didn't get both things I wanted, did I? (laughs) Hopefully I'd keep my spirit right if I really want some jelly. There's one God and one mediator. You know what Paul said to the Corinthians? To us, there is but one God. We are monotheists when it comes to God. But that may not be exactly the most accurate thing because God refers to other gods. So we have to understand what God means when he refers to other gods. It doesn't just mean there's only one thing that is supernatural, that is more than human in this universe. It means there's only one being in this universe who is the supreme God like he's God. Nobody else is God like God is God. But God calls other people gods. He refers to some of the angels in one passage as gods. He refers to people as gods if they're in a God-like capacity. But they're not gods in the sense that he is. They're not the supreme sole source of all divinity. There's one God. That's God the Father, the Almighty. And one mediator. That's Jesus Christ our Lord. Paul said to the Corinthians, To us, there is but one God. 
Right for that, he said, there's God's many and Lord's many. But to us, we don't believe you can blend religions. Buddhism is not equal to Christianity. Islam is not equal to Christianity. There is one faith, Ephesians 4 tells us. But there's one God who's the Father of whom are all things, 1 Corinthians 8, 6. And we in Him, if you're in Him, you got to get in Him through the Holy Spirit, which means if you are not filled with the Spirit, you need to be filled with the Spirit so you can actually say this verse and mean it. You might believe in the one God, but you may not be in Him. We want to be in Him through the baptism of the Holy Ghost. And there's one Lord Jesus Christ. We believe in one God the Father, soul and supreme in terms of the capital G God, and one Lord, Messiah, who is Jesus. And they work together as a father and son operation. They're a father and son business, you know, like Jones and Son or something. It's father and son business. It's the best father and son business ever built in the history of the universe. Nobody else can do the work that they do. Nobody else can build the product they're building. To take a sinner from the deepest depths of sin to the uttermost place of relationship with God, only that father and son business can do that. Aren't you glad you're a part of that? You're glad they're working on your behalf. But going back to what I was quoting in 1 Timothy 2.5, that's talking about God and Christ being the center. But before 1 Timothy 2.5 and 1 Timothy 2.4, he said he desires to have all men saved. And then in 1 Timothy 2.6, he repeats it again a little bit different way, talking about Jesus who gave himself a ransom for all. All. Not some. All. He wants everyone to be saved. So I had a conversation with somebody that called themselves a Calvinist, which just means they hold to the views of Calvin, most of which held to the views of Augustine. Augustine was one of the most foul individuals you'd ever meet. I wouldn't want to trace my lineage back to him. You want to know where most of Romanism and the Babylonian faith really took off? Under Augustine. So you don't want to trace your lineage back to him and say, Augustine taught something that was wonderful and good. He was a mess. Introduced all kinds of things that became the Babylonian church. He wasn't the only origin, but he was a great part of it. I was talking to this individual who said to me that God only is offering his salvation to the ones he's already chosen ahead of time. God has chosen what he's going to do corporately ahead of time. He's chosen he's going to have a church. Had somebody say, well, if the church is elect or Israel is elect, that has to mean all the members of it are elect, each individually. But that's not true. You know this nation was a nation God intended to use, and during certain periods of its history, it was used. It wasn't a perfect nation. This nation has had problems, like every nation. But God used this nation in a mighty way in certain areas as a harbor of refuge for those fleeing religious persecution. Just like right now, it's still, in a little different way, a harbor of refuge for those fleeing persecution. The sad thing is, when people came to the United States, they came with their preconceptions, they came with their traditions, And then they built denominations and divided almost as soon as they got here. They all started building their own thing. I'm so blessed in my heart. I'm so glad to see the variety of different backgrounds we have represented in our assembly. I met with Brother Jerome yesterday. We talked for quite a while. I told him, I'm so glad our precious people from multiple countries in Africa are here. We don't want you off somewhere in an African church because this isn't an American church. Does that confuse you? This is the body of Jesus Christ. It's not an American church. It's not an Indian church. It's not a European church. We don't trace our lineage to Europe. We trace our lineage back to the upper room. We trace our lineage to that 120 who were there in the upper room. The Spirit of God was poured out. 
And they were from all kinds of diverse backgrounds. They walked out of that room, and here were men that had been dispersed Jews from all over, speaking all different languages, saints. And when they started to speak in other tongues, they could hear them speaking in their dialect. God was making a point. I'm bringing people together from divergent backgrounds. We don't want to build an American church. We don't want to build a Rwandan church. We want to build the church of Jesus Christ. We want Americans in it and Rwandans in it. We don't want to divide up and segregate. Listen, this is why it's important we solve these issues in our language barrier. Because we aren't trying to create different churches with different languages. We want one church. Thank you, Lord, that you brought these precious people in here. Let us show the love that we can to them. Let us be instruments of your love. Glory. He gave himself a ransom for all, all, all nations, all kindreds, all tongues. There's no differences in the kingdom of God. All are gathered in. He started that with a little subtle way on the day of Pentecost, those different dialects. And then he quickly started ramping up his program. He didn't do it all at once. He did it in stages. We're doing all this in stages right now. We don't have all the solutions yet. He did. We don't. He knew exactly what he was doing. His plan was predetermined, predestined. He was going to have a church. You want to know something that's an interesting little thing most people totally miss in Acts 2? Somebody tell me. Well, that might be embarrassing if you did. Then when I say what I'm about to say, I'll tell you, all right? If I were to ask you how many people were in the upper room, I am willing to bet you would say 120. Don't say amen yet. That's not what it even says. It says about 120. You know why I think that's important? God could have had exactly 120 people in there. Maybe there were. But you know why he said about? It wasn't all pre-planned who was going to be in that upper room. If it had been perfectly pre-planned, why wouldn't it have got out of a real precise number? Let's make it a real precise number. It wasn't precise. About 120. Maybe there are 118. Maybe there's 122. I don't think God was shutting anybody out of that room. There wasn't a picture. There is a picture in the 120. But think how flexible God was. The picture that we've connected to in the Old Testament, by the way, if you understand types and shadows, is when Solomon's temple was dedicated. They had choirs singing. They had people playing instruments. One of the things that brought the Spirit in a mighty way was they said 120 people were playing trumpets. And when they sounded, the whole place filled up with a smoke where the priest couldn't even stand to minister. Now that was an exact number. I'm sure Solomon, as particular as he was, added exactly 120. This is a little hint about God's personality that I think some people totally have missed. If God was going to say, well, we're going to do this real precise, I'm only going to let 120 people in the upper room. So I'll predestine who's going to be there so it perfectly matches the 120 trumpeters. It didn't. It was about 120. I think God had an open door there. Any one of those precious people that had heard Jesus and had an experience, we could name a bunch of them. You could probably name 20 of them off your top of your head between the disciples and the women. Start naming them. But we don't know who they all were. But God had those precious people in that upper room. That was our birthplace. You say that was their birthplace. No, no. That was our birthplace. The church that you're sitting in right here was founded 2,000 years ago in that upper room Amen. by 120 people. Amen. 
I'm blessed that my grandfather was one of the co-founders of this group, but he wasn't a co-founder anymore than Brother White was. This church was co-founded by Jesus Christ our Lord 2,000 years ago. We just were blessed where the foundation was there. That's what Brother Sodders was doing too. Brother Sodders did not found this work. He didn't really relay it. He did a wonderful thing. He uncovered a foundation. When God said, I want you to preach my gospel, if you understand, maybe you haven't heard that before if you're newer. The beginning of our group of churches, God called a man on the Ohio River, not far south of here. And as he was standing in his boat, praying to God about what God wanted him to do, a voice thundered out of heaven and said, I want you to preach my gospel. And the emphasis was on the word my, because a lot of different gospels had been preached for 2,000 years. Church had slipped away into all kinds of false doctrine. God wanted to preach his gospel, not the gospel of some denomination, not the gospel of some particular monolithic church, not even the gospel of William Sodders, God's gospel. And so he was reaffirming and reestablishing that gospel. We go far further back than the 20th century. We go far further back than the rebirth of the Pentecostal movement in the late 1800s, early 1900s. We go far further back than the holiness movement in the 1700s. I'm glad we're linked to that. But our lifeline goes back further than any generation that preceded us until it reaches the upper room. And those holy apostles and prophets who laid the foundation of that church, that's what we're building on. So when you're a part of this church, you're a part of something a lot older than any of us. Thank God we have that heritage that we can go back to. So God wants all to be saved. In that sense, his love is unconditional, meaning he hasn't limited his love, reaching out in love, to just those he knows are going to be saved or has predetermined are going to be saved. He's reaching out to everybody. He knows some will never reach back. He knows some may reach back and then they'll go along the road for a little way. And that's why you can't deny that God doesn't predestine everyone's converted because there are lots of examples about where somebody was clearly converted that slipped back and may have been lost when the Samaritans were converted. Simon the sorcerer was converted with them. He was one among that group that got converted and baptized in water. And Philip obviously thought he was qualified to get baptized in water. He wouldn't have baptized him. But you realize when Peter and John came, this is an important thing if you don't understand the difference between the different baptisms in the Bible. When Peter and John came, they hadn't received the baptism of the Holy Ghost yet. They had been converted. They'd been baptized in water. But they came to pray over them so they would receive the baptism of the Holy Ghost. And it was in that context, after people were being filled with the Holy Ghost, that Simon the sorcerer said... I'd like to give you some money. There are lots of examples where God enters into a relationship with somebody. Just the parable of the sower alone will show you that. And they go back and they're lost. You know, the man that was given the talents and the pounds who refused to invest them was given them. And he still was cast out in outer darkness. He still was destroyed. Meaning you can enter into a relationship with God and not make it through. God loves you, but you didn't love him back. So is God's love unconditional? I wouldn't argue that it is, if you're meaning you don't have to do anything in response to his love. But on the other hand, does he love you when you aren't meeting any conditions? Yes, he does. Like I said, when I was out of church, I was not meeting any conditions of relationship, but he still loved me. And it's why I'm here. And many of us could testify to that, that God's love was unconditional throughout our life in many different areas. 
it's unconditional in the fact that he still loves you, even if you're doing wrong, but it's not an unconditional receiving of benefits because if you don't love him back, you're not going to receive the benefits of relationship. And one of those benefits is eternal life, which means if you want to have eternal life, it's not enough that God loves you. That's why I said Romans 8, right after, talks about how the spirit within us sometimes makes intercession for us. This is right before the verse I'm about to quote. With groanings that cannot be uttered. Because there's some things we just don't know. We don't know how to ask God. I cannot tell you the times, both as an individual, my personal life, as well as a pastor. And I'd imagine Brother Moore has certainly experienced the same. Where I did not know the answer. I wasn't intelligent enough. I wasn't wise enough. You know, we talk about something being outside our wheelhouse or outside of our pay grades. You know, it's bigger... There's a lot of things that are bigger than our pay grade. It doesn't matter how high you might be in the kingdom of God, how great you might be in terms of whatever offices you might have working. There's some things above your pay grade. Amen. There's been a lot of things above my pay grade. I didn't know. I didn't have the answer to that. And sometimes I didn't even know how to ask God for what I needed. Or I didn't know how to tell God what was going on in my heart. This is one of the reasons why it's so valuable to be filled with the gift of the Holy Ghost. Because sometimes, and I saw it happen at this altar as we were praying for people, Sometimes you burst forth speaking in another tongue. Sometimes you're speaking in something you don't even understand or just groaning out. Sometimes the Holy Spirit, when it's working through you, works with groanings that cannot be uttered, meaning you're not talking in an understandable language. Nobody could stand there and say, I understand what you just asked for. There's some things in our heart we don't have the vocabulary for. I wish I could every, I know a few words. And you don't know how much it means to me. Brother Obed, when I came up to you this morning, I'll throw out a few words once in a while. I'm not fluent at all in Kenya Rhonda. But once in a while, I'll throw out a good morning or a hello. Or My favorite phrase, I don't know if it's culturally applicable to everybody, but I love the phrase that we would translate into English, be strong. Oh my, when you all came from Africa and one of your greetings is be strong, you had me on fire. That's what I'm talking about. I'd like to meet everybody and just walk up to him and say, be strong, Amen. Jim. Yes. Be strong. Hallelujah. My Lord. Oh, I like that. I wish I had a fluent command of the language where I could talk to you. There's some things I'd like to say to you. I know Brother Jerome is doing a beautiful job, and I know he's trying to convey all my words. I said to him, when I met with him yesterday, I said, there's times, and this is tricky, when I choose words, I don't have them written down anywhere. I'm not choosing them that way. But a word comes to my mind that's very intentional. I'm not just choosing any word. I'm choosing a specific word because it has a very specific point behind it. And sometimes that can get lost in translation, either if you don't know what the word means, which means if I ever use any words that are bigger, I usually try to stop and say, which means, or whatever. But I hope we don't lose anything in translation. I hope when we're up here talking to you, I'm talking not our precious people from Africa, I hope you feel our hearts. I hope nothing gets lost in the beauty of the teaching and preaching of the Word of God and other testimonies, that it gets through to you. Not that Brother Jerome would lose it, he wouldn't. But that what we're expressing gets through to you. And what you're expressing gets through to us. We understand we're bound together by our hearts. That's what will make us one people. We want to be one people. We don't want any dividing up. I even told the youth leaders when we met with them the other day, they aren't doing this, but I just said for the future, we want to make sure we're getting the young people together. We don't want them all separated. Here's this group that grew up together. Here's this group that grew up together. They may be from different cultures or nations. No, 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 no. Mix it up. Mix it up. This is one church. One church. One people. We met a people we know a little better. We met a people we're more familiar with. But this is the family of God. The family of God. And we're bound together by love. 
That's what compacts us together, Brother Jim, what you mentioned this morning. We're compacted together, which means pressed tightly together, not just sitting close, tightly pressed together. No room for anything to slip in between us. No room for any root of bitterness to slip in between us, to slip in between and sever our relationship. We're bound together in love. And we're compacted by that which every joint supplieth. We're the joints in the body. What we supply to each other is love. That goes right back to what I've been saying. Love is not one-dimensional. It can never be one-dimensional. If the body of Christ, I've never said this before. It just hit me just now. If the body of Christ is bound together by the joints that are compacted together by that which every joint supplieth, meaning I might love Brother Andy and Brother Andy has to love me back for us to have a relationship. We wouldn't have much of one and probably he might love me more than I love him, but that'd be hard because I don't know if I love anyone so I love you, Andy. But the fact of the matter is each one of us have to supply. Every joint supplieth. Now that I've said probably many times through the years because it's just the way the Bible says it. But I want you to think about this. If that's true of us between each other, don't you think this joint right here has to supply something of the relationship coming from that great one up there? Amen. Meaning we're compacted together, not just because God grabs us and squeezes us tight and we can't get away, but because God reaches out with his compacting power of love and we reach back and say, please, Lord, draw me closer. Get me as close to you as you can get. We reach out and hold on to him. You know, that precious lady going through the crowd who had been diseased and dealing with that issue of blood all those years did not just wait for Jesus. She went looking for Jesus. And she pressed her way through the crowd. And she didn't just call out to him, will you please give me some attention? She took hold of the hem of his garment and she was healed, praise his holy name. And it's an amazing thing. It's one of the mysteries of the Bible. Jesus did not say, I noticed that and I healed her. He said, I'm going to say it in Greek and for a reason. Where did that dunamis go out from me? That's the word for power. It's translated virtue, but it isn't virtue like character. It's power. I felt some power leave me. He didn't say I exercised power. He said, I felt some power leave me. Her faith and her desire to be in a relationship with Jesus caused the power to be exercised on her behalf. Praise his holy name. He didn't even have to stop and look at her. Her love for him drew his attention. Praise his holy name. Praise his holy name. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Praise his holy name.